This is Dr. Shannon M. Clark with A Doctor Delivers Podcast, and today I am joined by OBGYN Dr. Fatima Dawood for an Ask Us Anything session. Today we will cover where does the amniotic fluid go during a cesarean, pregnancy after uterine rupture, uterine dehiscence, pelvic floor dysfunction, routine prenatal care, spontaneous preterm birth, cervical insufficiency and cerclage, anterior placenta, recommended interpregnancy and interdelivery intervals, placenta previa, trying to conceive after a first trimester miscarriage, hyperemesis gravidarum, prevention of preeclampsia, delaying childbearing, stillbirth after age 35, recovering from an obstetrical laceration, going non-toxic for trying to conceive, pregnancy after a tummy tuck, trying to conceive with a menstrual cup or menstrual disc, and cervical ectropion and pregnancy. Have a listen. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. I'm Shannon Clark with Babies After 35 here on Instagram, and I am joined by OBGYN Dr. Fatima Dawood, and you are in New York, right? Yes, I am. You are in New York. And how did I find out about you? I'm not sure how I found out about you, but I love your videos. I think your videos are super cool. So what is your handle here on Instagram? So on Instagram, my handle is Dr. Dawood, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-A-O-U-D. So make sure you go to Dr. Dawood's uh, Instagram handle and follow her because tons of great information there. I share a lot of it in my stories, so you may already know her from that way, but make sure you give her a follow. But what we decided to do was just kind of an ask us anything. I know some of you submitted some fertility questions, but we're not going to go to the fertility thing. We're sticking mainly with the pregnancy and postpartum questions. So let's start with the first one that was submitted. The first question we got, and this is actually something I never even think about, but I guess people wonder, and that is when you break the bag of water during a cesarean, where does the amniotic fluid go? Uh, So I actually love this question because I was oh my gosh, like I've never actually thought of it. Um, The answer is everywhere. It goes everywhere. um, And we kind of expect it and we plan for that. Um, So in a lot of situations, we have kind of like side pockets um, on either side of where we're operating, kind of like how a horse has like bags on the side of the saddle. A lot of the fluid goes there, but honestly, I mean, it goes on the floor, it goes on our, uh, our shoes, um, and mm-hmm. it's normal, and we expect it, and it's always a surprise. Yeah, so the drapes that we have uh, over, over the surgical field have little pockets that can catch the fluid or blood or whatever we have, and then there's a suction that takes, a, takes it out of the bag into a suction canister, but sometimes it doesn't make it there, and it just kind of goes everywhere. I mean, there's not a whole lot you can do about it, but that's kind of where the amniotic fluid goes. So yeah, that was a, one of the first questions we got. And I thought, you know what? I, we've never talked about this. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So the next question is, and I'll, I'll take this one, pregnancy after uterine rupture. Um, I was just happened to be going over this topic. So that's uh, why I picked it. So let's first talk about what uterine rupture is. Uterine rupture is where someone has had a previous uterine scar, most commonly from a previous cesarean. And during the course of labor, most commonly, although it can happen before the onset of labor, but most commonly during the course of labor, um, the previous uterine scar will open. That is a catastrophic event. It's an obstetrical emergency. It requires immediate delivery. That's why um, people who are wanting to do a trial of labor after cesarean need to make sure that the hospital is equipped for dealing with uh, those patients who want to do a trial of labor after cesarean, that the uh, obstetrician is in-house, anesthesia is in-house. That's one of the two requirements that uh, has to be met for a hospital to even offer uh, someone to do a trial of labor after cesarean in an attempt to do a VBAC. Um, so it's very important. And that's why, because once that happens, you got to get the baby out and it's, it's very, very urgent. But a uterine rupture means all the layers have been ruptured, meaning the perimetrium, the myometrium, the endometrium, and the uterine serosa, which is a very fine layer that covers the whole uterus. A lot of times um, the placenta can be involved in a very catastrophic one. Uh, other times parts are in, anatomy of the baby can be through the uterine rupture as well. So it can present in many different ways. It doesn't always confine itself to the previous uterine scar. Sometimes it could tear there and down or to the sides. It's, it just depends. You never know until you get in. But it is something that's very serious and uh, one of the risks that we worry about when, whenever anyone's doing a trial of labor after cesarean. So if you get pregnant after uterine rupture, that would mean that they were able to save, whoever delivers you was able to save the uterus um, by putting it back together. So the first thing that I would recommend, and you can jump in about your recommendations on, uh, after I get mine, is if you know you've had a uterine rupture, is it crucial that whoever repaired your uterus, meaning you kept your uterus and they repaired it, they explicitly put into the operative report exactly what kind of repair was done. Where did the uterus, where did the uterine rupture extend into? Did it go down into the cervix, into the sides, up into the top part of the uterus? Where was the repair done? 
So the next person delivers, you will know. So that's the first thing. The second conversation you need to have is what are your recommend recommendations regarding me getting pregnant again? Now, you don't always have to follow those recommendations, but the best person to ask is the one that puts you back together um, for, you know, that's going to be the best person to tell you what they recommend for future pregnant pregnancies. There is some people who will monitor the previous, the uterine scar in a subsequent pregnancy to see the thickness, but those studies haven't really shown to change outcomes. We don't do it here. And I have a lot of patients who have had cesarean sections. Do you do that at all? Where have, where you follow this, the thickness of the cesarean, previous cesarean scar in future pregnancies? Not routine, not routinely. Yeah. No. Yeah, we don't either. And then what recommendations do you have uh, to piggyback on what I said about for someone who's had a previous uterine rupture? Um, just to add to what you said, I mean, I completely agree. I specifically use the word catastrophic anytime yeah. that I'm counseling patients who are either have a history of uterine rupture or more commonly people who are attempting a trial of labor after cesarean uterine rupture. It is rare, um, but it does happen. And when it does happen, it really is an emergency for the pregnant person and for the baby or babies. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's important that there is a discussion so that the patient can make an informed decision about what risks they're willing to take and what risks they're willing to not take. Right. And then <laughs> some, for some of the stats, um, if the site of the ruptured scar was confined to the lower, lower uterine segment, which is the lower part of the uterus where we typically make the incision for a cesarean, the rate of repeat rupture is around 10%. If the scar extends up into the active segment or the upper part of the uterus where the, the muscle's thicker, the repeat rupture rate is reported to be as high as 30%, but some of the more recent case reports, or recent reports have estimated around 15%, which is still pretty high. And if you've had a previous uterine rupture, you do get pregnant again, delivery is going to be recommended at 36 to 37 weeks. Um, so that's just in a nutshell about uterine rupture. Now, this I wanted to just touch on for this topic is what uterine dehiscence is, because a lot of people use them interchangeably and they're really not the same. A uterine dehiscence is also known as a uterine window. And it's an incomplete division of the three layers. So um, not all the layers, the perimetrium, the myometrium, and the endometrium or the uterine serosa are going to be involved. Some of those layers that are going to be involved, but usually you have the uterine serosa there. And the amniotic sac is mostly intact uh, with uterine dehiscence as well. With the uterine dehiscence, it's asymptomatic, meaning you don't know you have it. I see a lot of uterine windows and uterine dehiscences when I go in to do a repeat section at 39 weeks because they're scheduled and you just go in, the patient's completely asymptomatic and you have a window there. It can be the entire lower, lower uterine segment. It can be a little part of it, but whatever we see, we document. And that's an also something that we can give a recommendation for um, for future pregnancies as well. Depending on how involved it was, delivery is going to be recommended anywhere between 37 to 39 weeks. But again, that's a conversation to have with the person that delivered you who actually physically saw that window with their own eyes. That's the best person to ask. Anything you want to add to that, Dr. Dawood? Um, the only thing I can add is if you end up delivering at a center that's different from where you had your previous surgery, um, I know in my practice and a lot of other doctors will actually yeah. request the operative note from the surgeon who did your last C-section so that they can get a little bit better of an idea of what went on if we're not the ones who did it ourselves. And I always say, you know, if you had a, a, a difficult delivery, especially a difficult C-section, get a copy of the operative note before you leave or within a week just to have that with you, because you never know where you're going to deliver again. And it's so much easier to just go ahead and get it while you're there. And I, there's been plenty of times where I've had difficult deliveries and I'll say, and I'll print it off myself and give it to the patient to take with them. Because a lot of my patients don't do repeat deliveries with us because they're from all over. So I always make sure they have a copy of that themselves. Um, okay, next question. This is a good one. And I gave this one to you. Are cesarean births associated with less risk of pelvic floor dysfunction? Uh, so I really like this question as well. Yeah. Um, so starting off by just defining what pelvic floor dysfunction is, it's kind of more of an umbrella term. This includes pelvic organ prolapse, where the uterus, cervix, uh, vaginal walls kind of protrude through the opening of the vagina. This includes stress urinary incontinence, so uh, losing urine with coughing, laughing, or sneezing, um, as well as overactive bladder and urgency incontinence, so lo accidental loss of urine associated with a sudden urge out of nowhere. Um, in the available literature, when you compare those who had a vaginal delivery versus a cesarean delivery, certainly those who had a vaginal delivery had an increased risk, um, especially those who had an operative delivery, so whether with forceps or a vacuum, had a much higher risk of pelvic floor dysfunction than those who had exclusively cesarean. Um, I guess the only other thing that I want to add to that is that just having a vaginal delivery or just having cesarean is not the whole picture when it comes right. to pelvic floor dysfunction or pelvic floor health. Um, things like chronic constipation, smoking, or things that can otherwise cause a chronic cough. 
um, the kind of bladder irritants and liquids you ingest, obesity, um, those are all risk factors for pelvic floor dysfunction. So certainly while the mode of delivery is important, there's so many other risk factors, yeah. some modifiable and some not, uh, that can contribute to that condition. Yeah, and just even being pregnant. There's some evidence that just carrying a baby and taking out of the picture how you deliver, just having carrying a, a pregnancy can contribute to pelvic floor dysfunction. So um, having a, uh, an elective cesarean section, like if someone asked me, um, you know, I'm only going to have one baby or one more. Should I just do a C-section? Because I don't want to have any kind of pelvic floor. I, I would never say that that's going to prevent it. It's not protective. So if you're having a cesarean just solely because of that concern, that I don't, I wouldn't necessarily endorse that. I respect anyone's wishes if they wanted to have a, 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 a cesarean section on maternal request. But if they're doing it solely because they think it's going to protect their pelvic floor, that's not really the best reason to go ahead and have that C-section. Do you feel the same way? I completely agree. It's major surgery. It is major surgery. And, uh, you know, again, it's a uh, size of babies, people that have had bigger babies, again, uh, having a, a significant uh, vaginal trauma from a, like a bad tear or, you know, sulcal tears are all kinds of things that can happen that can contribute to pelvic floor dysfunction. But there are multiple factors at play. Um, but if you have any symptoms of that, just make sure you get evaluated sooner than later because, you know, not addressing it and potentially getting pregnant again is only going to make it worse. So it's always better to go ahead and have that evaluated. Uh, okay, next question. Why won't the doctors lower the drape during a cesarean birth so the patient can see the baby or the birth? Um, I think it's a very valid question that I've been asked so many times, I feel like, in my career. Um, and I... The, I have a short answer and I have a slightly longer answer. The shorter answer is that we want to maintain sterility um, or making sure that the operative field is sterile. Um, C-section, like we were mentioning before, it's major surgery. And actually the data shows that you have a higher risk of being infected after cesarean compared to other similar abdominal surgeries. Yeah. Um, because the, the uterus, cervix, vagina, et cetera, are uh, kind of open and can expose the um, mm -hmm. abdominal contents to that bacteria. Um, and it's really dangerous. C-section is the number one risk factor for having a postpartum infection, the first thing that we consider when we're diagnosing it. That being said, um, my favorite kind of middle ground for patients who want to see a bit more um, when it comes to the cesarean delivery, but also kind of respecting the sterility is a clear drape. Um, mm -hmm. And the, where I work, they do have them. And for people who are interested in it, it's really great so that they can see everything, but also we're not worried about, you know, accidental droplets or yep. hair or skin or something coming, coming into the field and putting your patient at danger. So, I would so is, the clear, is the clear part on the part closest to the patient or is the clear part closest to you? So who drops the blue part? So is we actually anesthesia? have, yeah, we have anesthesia. We tell them, you know, when we're ready, we say drape yeah. down, they'll bring it down for us so that the patient can see that part of the surgery. See through the clear part, yeah. Um, we have, I think we have some that most patients that we have don't opt for that, which is fine. Um, but, um, yeah, it is an option. What you don't want to do is just drop everything completely and just not have a barrier between the surgical field and the patient. Um, the, the middle ground, like Dr. Dawood said, is to do the clear drape. What you're going to have is the blue, the, the, if you remember the blue drape is going to be on your side once it's time is ready and then they can drop the blue part and then the clear drape will, will remain. So that is one option. So if you're interested in that, you can talk to your provider to see if they have those drapes available where you're delivering to see if that is a potential uh, compromise. Okay, next question. Why aren't things like urine dips and fundal heights not checked at every visit? So this, what this question is asking is, I did a video recently on fundal heights and there's a lot of people who said my doc never does a fundal height. There's been another video I did on urine dips. There are some providers who don't do urine dips. So why is it that some do and some don't, I think is what the question is. Um, well, in terms of why some do and some don't, I guess it depends on their attitudes towards what they're looking for. So traditionally we think, okay, uh, you know, urine dip at every visit, we're gonna be looking for signs of protein, which could be signs of a hypertension, high blood pressure issue, we're looking for signs of glucose, possibly a sign of diabetes in pregnancy, maybe signs of a UTI. But it, in terms of what the data has shown us, just doing routine universal urine dips for everyone, including people who are at low risk, isn't really helpful. And it doesn't lead to under diagnoses. 
of these conditions. Um, so people who, when they come for their first prenatal visit, should have a urine dip, and then based on their risk factors, should have, you know, urine dips discontinued or continued. But when it comes to, you know, diagnosing hypertensive disorders or diabetes in pregnancy, there's much better tests for it yeah. than simply yeah. just doing a urine dip. So that's why in my personal practice, I prefer not to, but I've worked at other places where they just did it routinely. Mm -hmm. Um, and then what about the fundal height? Yeah, fundal height. Fundal height, um, in terms of what the um, ACOG recommendation is, it's uh, fundal height starting from 24 to 38 weeks. Um, because the whole purpose that we're doing it is to monitor, you know, the size of the uterus relative to how many gestational weeks you are. So if you're particularly larger, particularly smaller, but things like obesity, uterine fibroids, multiple babies um, could be a reason to avoid that and use other methods to screen for small for gestational age babies like ultrasound. Right. And so, you know, when you think about the urine dip, for example, I have a very high risk patient population. So we, everybody gets them, but we have a lot of people with pre-existing medical conditions. So if you're otherwise low risk, you don't have diabetes, you don't have chronic, chronic hypertension, nothing else that would be concerning, um, then they may opt to not do uh, urine dips. As far as funnel heights go, if you're already somebody that's getting routine or what we call serial growth scans, meaning every four weeks for, because of something, there's really no reason to do a fundal height because you're going to pick that, you know, you're following the growth. Um, again, all my patients, I still, we still do that, but our patients are high risk. Um, so it really depends on the pa uh, what's going on in your pregnancy, what the patient population is like in general as to what the providers uh, would, will do as far as routine stuff. Um, as, can you think of anything off the top of your head that providers, as far as what we consider routine prenatal care that some providers might do that others don't? I think those are the two big ones. The only other thing I was thinking of was how people screen for gestational diabetes. Mm -hmm. So there are people who prefer the, let's do a one hour glucose screening test. And then if you screen positive, we'll do a three hour test. And then other people are like, you know, let's just do it all in one shot. Let's do the two hour um, mm -hmm. diagnostic test. But that's the only like routine thing that I think that some places differ in. From what I yeah. But the, yeah, but they're, everybody's going to get screened for diabetes though. There's no, nobody's going to tell you not to. Um, yeah. But as far as things that people might opt out of, I think that's probably think that's really it. the only two that they might opt out of. If you guys can think of anything, put it in the comments and we'll get it towards the end. Um, okay. Preterm birth and cervical insufficiency. So this is a question. Uh, the question was this. I had choreo or chorioamnionitis, which is an infection of the lining of the uterus uh, during pregnancy. Uh, the membranes and the lining of the uterus, and it can go into uh, placental or uh, placental membranes into the umbilical cord, and then eventually to baby, depending on how severe the infection is. So this patient had a chorio had chorioamnionitis in preterm labor in the past. Didn't say how far along she was when she delivered. If I get pregnant again, would I benefit from getting a cerclage? And the second part of the question was, does it mean I had incompetent cervix if chorio caused my preterm labor? So the answer to that question is no. You it, it, you don't have to have an incompetent cervix, and I'll go over that. Uh, if choreo call, it doesn't mean you had cervical insufficiency or cervical incompetence or kind of the same thing. If you got choreo, people get it when their cervix is completely normal and they, there's no, really no good explanation. It happens, unfortunately. Just had a patient the other day that had it, had no risk factors and was not expecting it. And unfortunately, that's what happened. I spoke to her at length yesterday because they, they had a lot of questions about it. And it's, sometimes it's hard to say we don't have, based on what we know about you, we don't have any good reason why. And unfortunately, it does happen. But let's just go over a little bit about what there, there's, uh, it's called the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. They have a spontaneous preterm birth uh, algorithm. I'm just going to go through this quickly. So if you have had a prior singleton, meaning one baby, live birth between 16 weeks and 36 weeks and six days due to labor, pre spontaneous preterm labor, ruptured membranes, cervical dilation or cervical insufficiency or placental abruption, then right now, as of now, this, uh, the, uh, the, it's recommended that you be offered the 17 OHPC uh, progesterone IM injections. Now, I went over this, whether or not, why some people are not doing it, some are, we still do it. Do you still offer 17P? Um, for our high-risk doctors, they'll do it on like an ad, yeah. like case by case. Yeah. So some people are still offering it. We still offer it. Um, and then others will do vaginal progesterone, which is fine too. And um, you want to daily start those injections or the vaginal progesterone between 16 and 20 weeks. Then you go to serial cervical length assessments, and that starts at 16 weeks and goes until 23 weeks and six days. That can be weekly or every other week, depending on the length of your cervix. If during that time period between 16 weeks and 23 weeks and six days, your cervix shortens below 25 millimeters, which is 2.5 centimeters, then a cerclage may be recommended. But this, uh, the uh, cerclage is not going to be done after 24 weeks. 
If you're already on some form of progesterone and you, your cervix shortens to less than 25 millimeters or 2.5 centimeters, you should still continue the progesterone, the injections. Now, if your cervix happens to be short and dilated and membranes are exposed, they're going to stop anything vaginally, but you could still continue the IM injections. So the, the important thing is it's called spontaneous preterm birth. So that's why twins and preterm birth are not included because they're at increased risk for spontaneous preterm birth. Having a diagnosis of an infection, meaning you came in in preterm labor and you were, had a fever and we diagnosed you with choreo, that's not spontaneous preterm birth. There's a reason for that, and it's a bacterial infection. So that those patients are not included in this algorithm. We're getting the progesterone supplementation, either, whether with the injections or vaginally, or get, getting serial cervical links and then um, uh, a cerclage of your cervix shortens. So that's an important thing to know. But bottom line is if you're listening and you've had a history of having a, a preterm birth at less than 37 weeks, always make sure that your provider knows so that they can determine where you fall into as far as what your risk is for the subsequent pregnancy. Um, now, the other thing to talk about is we'll talk about the definition of incompetent cervix or cervical insufficiency. And this is from ACOG. So the term cervical insufficiency describes the inability of the, of the uterus and the cervix to retain uh, a pregnancy, and, but there's an absence of signs and symptoms, like there's no contractions or labor, and it typically occurs in the second trimester. Um, what we, a lot of times we'll see this, what we call incidentally, meaning they just happen to be coming in, the patient comes in for an ultrasound, and we see on ultrasound that the cervix is short. As, uh, we pick up a lot of cases that way. Oh, or they um, are having some increased vaginal discharge, maybe a little bit of spotting, provider puts a speculum in and all of a sudden you see some membranes are exposed and you're not expecting that, but you're not contracting. You don't have a fever. You don't have any other reason for uh, why that could be happening. So in those patients, they could be deemed. And again, that depends on the person who's evaluating you, whether or not you are, uh, whether what their findings are, are indicative of cervical insufficiency or cervical incompetence. And based on that, um, and, and this is, again, this is only a singleton pregnancies. Um, you could either get uh, a history-based cerclage, meaning you have a history of cervical insufficiency and you have that diagnosis. So you get an elective or a prophylactic cerclage placed at around 12 to 14 weeks, or you get something called an emergency or rescue cerclage, like those scenarios I just mentioned. You um, happen to get an ultrasound and we see uh, funneling membranes and exposed membranes and that rescue cerclage occurs when the membranes are already coming through the cervix. So that's a rescue cerclage or uh, a cerclage based on an ultrasound exam that we happen to pick up. So there's, those are, that's the other way that cervical insufficiency might be diagnosed and then uh, either a prophylactic or an emergent or rescue cerclage might be placed. So I know that's a lot of information, but it's kind of two separate, you know, those with the history of spontaneous preterm birth getting serial cervical links and those with the history of cervical insufficiency, those are the two types of patients who are potential candidates for a cerclage. Do you have anything to add on to that? I mean, I feel like you covered all of it. The only yeah. thing I have to add is there are certain people that we identify early in the pregnancy of, you know, you have an increased risk of cervical insufficiency, for example, if someone's had a leap or multiple leaps, mm -hmm. and they lead, follow them with cervical links, and they end up doing just fine, and then there are people who have absolutely no risk factors, yeah. and then, you know, they come in with that exact scenario, those membranes uh, that we see on exam. So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, your destiny if you had procedures done on your cervix that you would have cervical insufficiency. Yeah, and the whole thing with the leaps and the cold knife cones. Now, a cold knife cone is typically more involved in the leap, but they providers have done a very good job of not taking as much tissue with the leap as they used to back when I was training because we used to take out a lot of tissue. And we realized that was not the right thing to do because it was leading to cervical insufficiency. Docs are better about it now, about, about not taking as much tissue. But if, you've had, if you are someone that's going to get a leap or had a leap, again, the operative report is crucial. Talk to your doctor. How much, what were the dimensions of the tissue that you took? Uh, did you have to take a lot of tissue and so that you could tell your OB provider in your next pregnancy to get those records so they could determine how to, whether or not you're at increased risk and how they want to monitor you. So getting those operative reports was always key. Okay. And now this isn't something I didn't even know was an issue until I started talking on social media, but a lot of people are worried about that anterior placenta. So what are the concerns with anterior placenta? Um, I, I thought the same exact thing. I was like, yeah. an anterior placenta is an anterior placenta. Um, so an anterior placenta is when the placenta decides to grow or kind of where the pregnancy implants. It plants anteriorly, so closer to the abdomen as opposed to on the sides or towards the back. And from a how we manage it during pregnancy, nothing really changes when it comes to routine prenatal care. Um, one of the issues is that people may be, um, they may feel fetal movement 
um, slightly later um, because, you know, you have that like kind of a cushion from what the baby has to punch and kick through in order for the parent to feel that. Um, but again, it's not a risk factor for anything in particular. Um, the thing that I think of when I think of issues with the anterior placenta is one, if there's any kind of abdominal trauma. Um, so if you fall on your belly, hit your belly, uh, if you wear a seatbelt incorrectly yeah. during pregnancy and it puts pressure on the abdomen, then the placenta is kind of what takes the first hit. And so there's an mm -hmm. increased risk of injury to the placenta or what we call placental abruption, um, bleeding between the placenta and the uterus. Um, so that's something that is slightly weak um, about an anterior placenta. Um, also, I mean, if we're doing a C-section, I think someone had asked a similar question, yeah. well, how do you do a C-section if my placenta is right there? Um, anyway, I mean, we expect it to be there ahead of time. So we just cut and remove quickly and we get the baby yeah. out um, so that the baby doesn't lose blood um, during mm -hmm. that procedure. Um, the one thing that, you know, I think that you're much more qualified to talk about uh, when it comes to anterior placentas is when you're getting um, an amniocentesis mm -hmm. and the uh, placenta is anterior. Yeah, so I mean, if we have to go through the placenta, you go through the placenta. The first goal is to avoid the fetus. So, but an anterior placenta during the amniocentesis window, especially before 20, 22 weeks, you're going to have to go through the, most of the time, go through the placenta. And the key there is just, you, you definitely want to get it in that one, one quick, uh, you know, pass through the uterine wall and into the placenta. Um, but, you know, there could be a slightly increased risk of a complication from that. But, uh, you know, in, in experienced hands, it's really not. Um, but you know, if you have to go through the placenta, you have to go through the placenta and just to be back on at the time of a cesarean section, uh, what most people don't understand is as the uterus gets bigger, you start to separate two portions of the uterus. The top two thirds of the uterus are kind of like the contractile part and it's thicker and it's more muscular. And then you get a lower uterine segment. that's actually not as muscular, not as thick. And most of the cases of anterior placenta, the edge of that placenta is up higher than where we would do the uterine incision. So, you know, can, can there be cases where it's actually involved there? Yeah, but most of the time it's not. Unless it's a low-lying placenta or a placenta previa, then of course it's going to be there and you just have to go through it. But the routine run-of-the-mill anterior placenta at the time of a C-section and a term pregnancy, most of the time the, that lower uterine segment is clear of that bottom edge of the anterior placenta and it's not even, not even an issue. Like, like Dr. Dawood said, if it happens to be there, we've done enough that you just babies out and you don't even think about it. <laughs> It's out before you even know it. So uh, that's kind of how we do it. And uh, I don't ever ultrasound first to see where the placenta is. I don't, the only time I've ever done that is if there's fibroids there. I don't try to find where the placenta is. I just go in and make the incision on the best part of the uterus as possible. And if that placenta happens to be there, you just got to move quicker, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, next question. What is an appropriate interpregnancy interval? Meaning, what would we prefer if we could have our preference for interpregnancy? Well, what is interpregnancy interval, and then what's the preferred uh, timing? So, interpregnancy interval is time between the ending of one pregnancy and the conception of another pregnancy. And honestly, this is like the bottom of the totem pole in terms of what's important when you're planning your pregnancies. Mm -hmm. But if you were to ask your doctor, um, you know, 18 months is what we like. But as I was doing a little bit more digging into like, why do we, why 18 months? Why not 12 months? Why not 20 months? Um, there's not a whole bunch of data that really backs up the 18 months thing, even though I've been saying it forever. Um, and it also, there's no like one size fits all. And so the way that I would counsel someone about an appropriate interpregnancy interval depends a lot about their personal history and what their last delivery was. I mean, certainly if you were 21 and had a normal, uncomplicated, low-risk vaginal delivery, I'd counsel you different than a 40-year-old who just had a classical C-section at 28 weeks um, about how far apart your uh, pregnancies should be. I will say at minimum, um, my recommendation would be at least six months, yeah. especially, especially if you've had a C-section, especially mm -hmm. if a uh, trial of labor uh, after cesarean is something that you're yes. interested in. Um, but truly, there's no, there's no one-size-fits-all um, but I would recommend that you talk to whoever your obstetric care provider is about your personal risk factors and also your goal for the future as well. For what your family plan, yeah. So there's actually more data supporting not getting pregnant sooner than six months than there is to waiting 18 months. So, you know, we have more data about potential adverse pregnancy outcomes if people get pregnant within a six-month window. So, you know, I say I would love to get six to 12 months. I don't necessarily say 18 months if they have not, if it wasn't a cesarean birth. Now, if you get into a cesarean birth and 
um, you're wanting to do a potentially do a, a child labor after cesarean in the next one, or you had a classical C-section, or you had a more complex repair, then I'm definitely going to ask for 18 months for the interdelivery interval, meaning from one delivery to the next, to give that uterus time to repair. So interdelivery interval is more associated for someone who's had a C-section in the past. And if we could get 18 months, that's ideal for that, C that old scar to heal. Um, but again, if and they add on, on to this, what about if you're AMA, especially over age 40? That's something that you have to consider because not a lot of people over age 40, if they're wanting to have that second baby or even third, have the luxury of waiting 18 months. But that's something to consider, but only you can make that decision. Um, and, you know, obviously, depending on how quickly you get pregnant again, it's important that your provider is aware of that and take any precautions or, you know, that they need to do. But those are kind of the recommendations on what we would prefer for interpregnancy interval, interval versus interdelivery interval. Okay. The next question is, and I get this question a lot, and I'll take this one. Placenta previa is diagnosed with the 18 to 22 week scan. So 18 to 22 weeks is typically when we do the anatomy scan. And we see a lot of low-lying placentas and previas at that time. And that's just because the uterus is smaller. And the lower uterine segment is not necessarily different or differentiated from the, uh, the top part of the uterus. But most of the time, once that uterus starts getting bigger, the placenta moves up out of the way. And uh, I think I, I, up to 40-plus percent move out of the way, maybe a little bit, little bit more than that move out of the way. But... If you get diagnosed with placenta previa at 18 to 22 weeks and you've never had a C-section, I wouldn't really worry about it. They're probably going to tell you to do pelvic rest and then rescan you. We bring our patients back at 32 weeks to have another look to see what the placenta's done. If it still hasn't moved out of the way or it's now no longer previa, but it's considered low-lying. And low-lying means that lower edge of the placenta is within two centimeters of the internal opening of the, of the cervix. Then we bring you back at 36 weeks. Once you get to that 36-week mark, though, wherever the placenta is, it's going to stay. It's likely not to move after that. So we make delivery plannings based on the, uh, the, the uh, location of the placenta at that 36-week mark. Uh, now, if you've had a previous cesarean section, it's different because if you have an anterior previa, uh, placenta previa, and a, and a previous cesarean section, it's less likely to move because it's over that old scar. And so I'm not saying it won't. I've seen it happen sometimes, but more likely, it's not as likely to move as someone who did not have a previous C-section. So that's something to consider if you've had a C-section versus not um, on the chances that it's going to move. Anything you want to add to that? And just to add to that last point, anytime I hear anterior placenta previa and history of a previous C-section, mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be looking really, really carefully on your ultrasound to make sure that the placenta has not uh, grown abnormally into the uterine muscle. It's kind of a whole different discussion. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you think about like placenta accreta in those cases. The way, do we watch them? Of course we do. But just because I don't see any markers of accreta and there are certain ultrasound markers doesn't mean I'm going to assume it's not there. I always assume the other way. If I have yeah. an anterior placenta previa or any kind of previa, actually, on someone with a previous cesarean section or uterine surgery, I assume it's an accreta until I'm proven otherwise. I, I prep the patient, the OR, as if there's going to be an accreta, uh, and hopefully it's not. But I'm always pre prepared to, I always assume that it's going to be. Um, it's better to over uh, plan than under plan. So that's always nice when it's not. When it's not, yes. Yeah. Okay. Another good question for you. When can I start to try to conceive after a first trimester miscarriage? Um, so I actually had this conversation uh, with a patient very recently. Okay. Um, and that's uh, whenever you're ready. Um, so from what we know, you can ovulate as soon as two weeks after mm -hmm. either a miscarriage or a termination of pregnancy. And in, in terms of what the data has shown, what studies have shown, there's no benefit to waiting, you know, X number of months or years or anything like that. Um, there was one study that said that you actually have a decreased risk of adverse outcomes if you get pregnant within the three-month window. Um, but the most important thing is, do you feel physically and emotionally yeah. ready to start trying again? And for some people, that's right away. And for other people, that's months or even years later. Um, but from a medical perspective, if you're asking if there's an increased risk of a miscarriage happening again, um, not really. It's not really based on timing. Yeah, it's not going to change whether or not you have a miscarriage. The only thing I would add to that is if you had a complicated uh, course with your miscarriage, meaning you hemorrhaged or you had to go back for a DNC or another DNC, you know, more than one time to the OR, or you had to have a lot of manipulation of your cervix for whatever reason, those are all questions to ask your provider because in those cases, you might want to wait a little bit longer. Not that it's going to cause a 
problems for the pregnancy, but you just want to heal, give your time, yourself time to heal. There used to be a recommendation that you wait until one, two, or three normal menstrual cycles to try again. That's mainly for proper pregnancy dating, not because it's going to change anything. So you can wait that time and you know that you have a normal menstrual cycle, but if you happen to get pregnant before that first normal menstrual cycle, I would just suggest that you enter care earlier so they can get an early ultrasound to properly date you because you don't have that regular menstrual cycle to fall back on for pregnancy dating. So it's important that you uh, just go ahead and enter care a little bit earlier and let them, your provider know, Hey, I just had a miscarriage. I didn't really have a, a normal period, but you know, let's get this early ultrasound to see exactly how far along I am. So those are the only two things I would add to that. Anything else for you? I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Hyperemesis. Somebody want me to discuss hyperemesis gravidarum. I have had, we have had more, I'm rounding this week. We have had more hyperemesis admissions than I've seen in such a long time and all different gestational ages and all different levels of severity. Um, but hyperemesis gravidarum, uh, let's back up. Nausea and vomiting in pregnancy is common. It happens in up to 85% of pregnant individuals, uh, whether it's nausea, vomiting, or a combination of the two. Uh, hyperemesis is when the nausea, vomiting of pregnancy gets more severe. So there's not really a specific set of diagnostic criteria to say you have hyperemesis, but we do include the following. Um, that we know there, it's not related to anything else. The first thing you can't always assume that severe nausea and vomiting of pregnancy is always because of the pregnancy. You gotta make sure you rule out anything else that it could be because you don't wanna just assume that's because of the pregnancy and miss something else. Um, a lot of times there will be ketonuria or signs of dehydration um, because the patient has been vomiting so much they're not able to hydrate. Um, there's gonna be some kind of weight loss. Um, most often we kind of use the at least 5% of their pre-pregnancy weight loss, uh, percentage of their weight loss ha has occurred. And then you might have electrolyte abnormalities, like your potassium might be off. Your creatinine might be high just because you're dehydrated. You might have some other electrolyte abnormalities that are off. Um, and then people use thyroid. I don't use thyroid because most people that have hyperemesis, their thyroid function tests are going to be off. <laughs> the only time I would really look at that is if they came into the pregnancy with a history of thyroid disease, then I might check it, check their thyroid levels. But if they didn't, I don't rely on thyroid levels because just based on the pregnancy alone, the, the thyroid function, function tests might be off. So then hyper, uh, hyperemesis gravidarum is going to occur in about 0.3 to 3% of pregnancies. And it's the most common indication for, to, for admission to the hospital during the first trimester of pregnancy. And a second only to preterm labor is the most common reason for hospitalization, hospitalization during the entire pregnancy. So it happens. Um, these are the things I would say about hyperemesis. And this is what I always tell my patients. Number one, one once you're admitted into the hospital, most patients with hyperemesis will end up getting admitted to the hospital. It's a hard thing to control as an outpatient. Whatever medication regimen they put you on that has got you under control, once you leave the hospital, stay on it for four weeks because if you stop once you start feeling better, it's going to bounce back. You give yourself that time to get at least a month into the pregnancy, a month more into the pregnancy, then you can start backing off on the, um, on the medications. Um, dietary and conservative measures are also very important, avoiding triggering foods. Uh, staying on a proton pump inhibitor or some kind of anti-acid to help you with the reflux component of that. I don't ever uh, send anybody with hyperemesis home on just anti-nausea medications. They're always going to be on something for reflux as well, because there's always going to be a component of that. So making sure the patient understands uh, any dietary recommendations, uh, what medications, and before anybody says, there are so many medications, and I'm sure you can agree with me, that we can give patients in the first trimester. <coughs> that are fine. Uh, and I know patients don't want to take anything, but you can't be at home with hyperemesis and let it go uncontrolled because it's, that's not healthy for you and it's miserable. So there are a lot of medications. I mean, we have a whole list of them that we can kind of mix and match, right? So is that kind of how you approach your patients with hyperemesis? Yeah, exactly. It's kind yeah. of like a risk benefit. Like what mm -hmm. else do you possibly have going yeah. on paired mm -hmm. with this? We can maybe kind of kill two birds with one stone kind of thing. Yeah. One of my patients just had the, I'm not going to say run in the mill. It's not running the mill to the patient, but for me as a physician, straightforward hyperemesis was out of the hospital. Another one came in the same day. She's still here because she got esophagitis as well. Why did I figure kind of pick up that something was going on? Cause she told me it hurt when she ate. So it, the, the vomiting wasn't, is bothering her as much. It's just physically hurt her. So I'm like, well, that's not typical. 
Now we know that she had multiple episodes of vomiting. So maybe she did something, consulted a GI, and sure enough, she's got esophagitis and needed additional type of medication to help um, control that. So those are all things that's important to figure out when you're admitted with hypermesis because other things can go on and you, you got to make sure you manage that. Otherwise, it's not going to help you with your, with your diagnosis. Um, but I feel for anybody that has hyperemesis, it is miserable. It really is. I didn't have hyperemesis. I just had severe nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. Really, the only thing that I could eat for most of my pregnancy was mashed potatoes. That's pretty much all I could, I could tolerate. <laughs> I ate a lot of mashed potatoes. <laughs> okay, next question. This is a great one. What can be done to reduce the risk of getting preeclampsia again in the subsequent pre pregnancy? Um, so I get this question all the time. Yeah. Um, preeclampsia can be um, a really uh, difficult diagnosis, um, especially if it leads to a preterm birth, um, especially mm -hmm. if it's like a second trimester um, kind of preterm birth. Um, and what I tell people is preeclampsia is never your fault. It's never a result of something that you did. However, there are certain uh, risk factors that are modifiable and not modifiable. And then there's also the option of aspirin. Um, so I'll talk about aspirin first. Um, so it's just like baby aspirin, it's 81 milligrams. Um, and you would start it um, you know, between like starting at like 12 to like 24-ish weeks, ideally before 16 weeks. And it's the only medication that we've seen kind of consistently um, decreases the chances of getting severe preeclampsia. There's no medication that kind of across the board always unequivocally prevents preeclampsia, um, but it's kind of a, a tool in the tool belt, if you will. Um, and then there's other things that, again, where there are modifiable risk factors that you can consider addressing prior to getting pregnant if you want to plan it out that way. Um, so one of them is um, having a higher body weight, elevated BMI. Um, again, it can happen to people of a normal weight as well. Yeah. Um, but that's one of the things that we are able to modify, whereas, for example, our age, um, our prior history of preeclampsia, our family history, those are things we can't modify. Um, this is getting a, a slightly into like slightly hairier territory, but if you have a multifetal gestation, especially let's say you have more than twins, like triplets or quads, really, really increases yeah. your risk of preeclampsia. And so having that discussion with your high-risk doctor of, do I want to continue or do I want to consider a fetal reduction because of the risk of preeclampsia and kind of all those yeah. things that come along with it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's never your fault is the main thing that I tell people. Yeah, so the, with the, the low-dose preeclampsia, we have definitely seen. It may not, uh, and it's especially true for those that had complicated preterm or early preterm deliveries like 28 weeks and below, severe preeclampsia, postpartum preeclampsia, those are all risk factors and things to consider um, giving low-dose baby aspirin in the next pregnancy. Um, so we kind of have a high risk, um, patients that are high risk and patients that are at moderate risk. There's several things that fall into the high risk category. And if you have one of those, just one, you are a candidate for a low dose aspirin starting at 12 weeks. And then we have the moderate risk uh, uh, risk factors and you need uh, two or more to get um, uh, to fall into that category. So it's important to consider that. And I actually have a post on that if you scroll back or you can go to my preeclampsia highlight here on Babies After 35 and I have all kinds of information there about baby aspirin. But it's important. And um, the other thing is that something that just changed in 2021, December, is we used to stop it uh, earlier, like around 36 to 37 weeks, but now you continue it up to delivery. So that has changed. Um, and it's, it's important that you, you can go back and look at my highlight and find out the exact high risk risk factors and the low risk or moderate risk factors to see where you fall. Um, but it's not uh, a guarantee it's going to prevent it, but a lot of times it will occur later in the pregnancy for those that had it really early. Uh, and then in some patients that had it later in the pregnancy, it might, it might actually prevent it. So it, it, it kind of depends on when you had it and how severe it is. Our, our goal with the low-dose aspirin is to, get, to at least get you further along in the pregnancy this time to not have such a preterm birth because of uh, preeclampsia. Okay. Anything else you want to add to, uh, oh, while we're on the topic, and I don't know if you know, do you know anything about that brewer's diet? I have not heard, heard of it. Mm -mm. Oh, Lord. well, I'll have to send you my post. For those of you guys, the brewer's diet does not prevent preeclampsia. I, I did a post with a, another uh, creator here. It's this crazy diet that apparently cures everything that can happen in pregnancy, including preeclampsia. It is not a healthy diet. It, 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 okay, so it's called the brewer's diet, but it doesn't mean you're on a diet. It's just dietary changes, but you're consuming all of these crazy amounts of calories, and it's, there's no science, zero science behind it. So the people that are promoting that are promoting false information. So please do not buy into, if you hear anybody on social media telling you to do the brewer's diet is complete junk. Do not do it. It is not uh, anything that's 
proven to decrease anything. If you go to the, you should go look. It's crazy. You go to the website, it, it prevents preterm labor. It prevents preeclampsia. I mean, it's just like the miracle. I, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm it like, is that easy? Like, if it was that easy, we would have figured it out a long time ago. Um, and I tell people, like, if someone's trying to sell you something, like their workout plan, their birth plan, their whatever, it's probably not legit. But I definitely have to look that up now. It's going to be funny. I'll, I'll send it to you after we're done here. It's crazy. Okay. Oh, great. Uh, a couple, here's a few questions about AMA. I am 35. I'm not ready to have a baby yet. What do I need to do if I want to wait a few more years to try to conceive? So first things first, if you're having... If you're not having regular menstrual cycles, be evaluated sooner than later. If you are and you're otherwise healthy, that's fine. You might want to, you know, you can wait a few more years, but I would also consider freezing your eggs. I know it's a monetary consideration, but if you have the means to do that, I would definitely do that. If you don't, you just have to be evaluated. Go see an RAI specialist. Let them know, hey, I'm planning on waiting a few more years. Where do I stand right now? Or what recommendations do you have for me? Again, I say it every time, I, every chance I get. Going to see an REI in consultation does not mean they're going to automatically sign you up for IVF. They're great at counseling you about these things and assessing you as an individual and what potential barriers there might be if you decide to delay childbearing a few more years at age 35. So they're very good about spelling all that out for you so that it can help you make your decision on exactly how long you might want to wait. Or they might tell you something that says, you know what, I need to freeze my eggs. You know, so go see them sooner than later, just as a consult to get some information. Um, but if you're planning on waiting, you know, making sure any medical conditions that you have, especially if they require medications, make sure they're op optimally controlled. Um, you know, the smoking, anything that can impair fertility, but it always starts with what your periods are like. If you're already starting with, you know, not uh, uh, regular men menstrual cycles, then that needs to be evaluated first before you even think about anything else because the, your menstrual cycles are like a vital sign. <laughs> it's going to tell if there's something's going on, you need to be evaluated to see why you're not having regular menstrual cycles. <laughs> Excuse me. The next question was, or anything you want to add to that? No, I'm good. Yeah. What's the risk of stillbirth after age 35? Are more ultrasounds required in the third trimester? So here, I just got some stats together. Stillbirth first is de, uh, defined as a fetal death at 20 weeks or more. It occurs at a rate of 6.2 per 1,000 U.S. Uh, births. Um, and advanced maternal age, especially over age 40, is one of the most important contributors to unexplained stillbirth. Um, so advancing age is a, is a big contributor to the risk of stillbirth. Um, so some of the stats show that women age 35 to 39 have a 1.9-fold increased risk of stillbirth compared to those younger than 30. That's pretty much a two times increased risk. And then... Uh, 40 years and older have a two and a half high, uh, times higher risk. Um, so as far as there's, there's, and this can happen even in people that are healthy. Is it scary? Yes, it's absolutely scary. And it's, it's one of the things that comes along with the delaying childbearing. It is. We just have to uh, understand that and know that's one of the risks. So if you're over age 40, if you're over age 35, if you have any pre-existing medical conditions, then that's going to kind of um, guide what kind of antenatal sur surveillance you might need and whether or not you need serial ultrasounds for growth and things like that. So you kind of put everything together to determine any kind of antenatal surveillance you want to do or any uh, serial ultrasounds that you want to do. You kind of put that whole package together. Now, I just um, published that paper on pregnancy after 40. I uh, put it into a blog and I'll put that out soon so that you can get access to that paper. You can only do it on a PDF, but my, my friend found a way to put it into this blog so you guys can read it. Um, but it has a lot of data there as well, and I'll do that soon. Um, but the most important thing is to talk to your provider. You can even do an MFM preconception consult. That means before you even get pregnant. And I highly recommend that to anyone who's over age 30, especially over age 40. And if you have pre-existing medical conditions, get that consult so they can help you kind of plan uh, for when you do get pregnant. Um, anything you want to add to that one? Um, the only thing I'll add is I always ask my patients about their kind of future family planning goals yes. at their annual exam. Um, and it's not because, you know, I'm trying to pressure you into getting pregnant sooner or anything like that. But it's important that if it is, you know, if you do decide to delay childbearing to age 35, age 40, age 45 plus, you need to understand your risks. And I think that that's where informed consent comes in. As long as you understand the risks associated with having um, a pregnancy at an older age, 
that's fine. And we want to support you. We want to help you have the healthiest pregnancy possible. Yeah. Um, but it's never us trying to be intrusive or trying to pressure you to go in that way. So consider, um, you know, preconception counseling. I love when people come in for preconception counseling. Yeah. But if you don't get it, we can still try to set you up the best that you can do for the rest of the pregnancy. Good, good. Okay. And then here's a few quick questions I'll answer about COVID. Uh, I just, someone had asked me any info about the second booster or the fourth dose uh, of COVID vaccine in pregnancy. There's going to be a meeting on April 6th uh, with the ACIP that's going to give recommendations about the next dose in adults. And that's probably going to, I'm sure it's going to include pregnant individuals. Uh, but as of now, the only thing that people could be, have done is the two, two dose primary series and one booster or the one dose, a J&J &J, followed by a booster. So we're waiting to see about that, that second booster. Any evidence that monoclonal antibodies help reduce the impacts of the placenta on the fetus? No, we don't have that kind of information that if someone has uh, um, COVID and they get the monoclonal antibodies, will that decrease the risk of impacts on the placenta? Um, no, we don't. I wish we had that kind of information. We don't. We might be getting it. But um, we do know that those who get COVID infection, I post about this and I'm still getting hate about it. It does affect the placenta. It causes COVID placentitis. Uh, we're not seeing this type of effects on the placenta in those that are vaccinated and get breakthrough infections. Thankfully, I'm not saying patients that get breakthrough infections don't have complications, but we're not seeing it to the degree that we see in those that are unvaccinated. So, um, and I did a, a, a slideshow recently about why we think that is. So go back to that slideshow within the past maybe 10 posts or so and read that information there. Okay, this is another good one. How long does it take to recover uh, from a perineal tear? Um, so it certainly depends on the kind of tear that you had. So classically, we grade them um, as first through fourth degree. First degree is when it just goes through the um, mucosa or like that uh, the tissue layer of the vagina. Um, second degree is when it goes a little bit deeper into the perineal muscle. Third degree is when it enters into the anal sphincter but doesn't completely go through the anal sphincter. Um, and then fourth degree is when the vagina and the rectum are just open into one. And so certainly uh, the fourth degree and the third degree as well um, have a, a more lengthy recovery process compared to like a first or a second degree. First or second degree, you'll be sore for a couple of weeks and the stitches that we use, which are dissolvable stitches, um, they'll, they'll be gone by your six week postpartum visit. And, you know, they're much more easier to recover from than a third or fourth degree, third or fourth degree. Um, you need, you know, in some people's practices, they get antibiotics after they repair it. Um, you need to make sure that you don't have, have constipation or have to strain, because if you do, you do have the potential of what people call popping those stitches, um, and that can lead to that can lead to your wound opening up, it can lead to yeah. the wound being infected, having to go back to the operating room. And that certainly takes much longer, um, not to mention the pelvic floor dysfunction that can be associated with a third and fourth degree laceration. Mm -hmm. So I'll say in general terms, I'll say for most people, it's four to six weeks, but it could be slightly less or slightly more um, depending on the severity of the laceration that you had. So that's a good question to ask your provider. Whoever repaired you, ask them. Uh, I think that any provider should tell if they put stitches anywhere in someone's vag vaginal vault, perineum, labia, Urethra, the patient should know exactly where the stitches were placed, and that's going to impact anything for the recovery. Um, obviously, like Dr. Dawood said, if you're having a more severe, severe perineal tear, or sometimes it tears into to the vagina along the sulk, what we call the sulcal tears, um, sometimes there's cervical lacerations that are involved. But, you know, we might recommend a longer time to wait to heal. Um, if you didn't have any kind of stitches placed, you may not need to wait four to six weeks before you feel like having intercourse, but it's what you want. If you don't want to have intercourse within six weeks, you don't have to, okay? It's about what you want. Um, so it's two factors, how long you need to heal based on what kind of repair was done and what you want, right? Absolutely. You're the gatekeeper there. It's up to you as to what you, what you feel like you're ready for. I know I was not ready. I was ready, you know, for a long time after I gave birth. I didn't have a baby vaginally, but, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's different. Okay. Well, let's just go through and answer some questions. Let's see what we got here. Do you recommend going non-toxic for trying to conceive and while pregnant? I will admit, I am not the best person to ask that. I will go to Dr. Laura Shaheen, L-O-R-A, Shaheen, S-H-A-H-I-N-E, her account here. She does a lot of information. She is an REI specialist, fertility specialist. She talks a lot about this particular topic. Do you want to add anything to that? Do you know 
have any particular I, I don't. Same, same. I'm really not yeah. the best authority yeah. for that. She's probably the best account, account here about this particular topic while trying to conceive. So I would go to her account. Mm. Is there a test I could do in the office, like a blood test that could tell me if my chances are good for another healthy baby? I wish we had that kind of test. No. I wouldn't There's be doing not, this I, job. Yeah, I know. I, no, I wish. Um, I'm not sure what you're talking about specifically, but there's no one test that could tell you anything, actually, about any future uh, chances of a pregnancy, unfortunately. I wish that were actually available. Pregnancy after tummy tuck. What have you seen? What have you seen, pregnancy after tummy tuck? I mean, have you seen a lot? I, I've seen a handful. I mean, I haven't seen a whole lot. Um, I mean, in terms of the pregnancy itself, it goes fine. It's just that, unfortunately, the cosmetic result, um, especially with the stretching of those muscles, the diastasis that happens, the stretching of the skin, um, a lot of times it doesn't always go back to how it looked pre-pregnancy. Yeah, I see a lot. I have, a, oddly enough, I have, a, well, I have a lot of patients from, that are from Mexico, and they get a lot of tummy tucks there, and they get pregnant afterwards. Now, if they get pregnant after tummy tuck, the main thing you have to worry about is the skin and the muscles are tight and it can be uncomfortable for you because you don't have as much laxity for your, your skin and your muscles to stretch and, and accommodate that growing belly. So you are more likely to have more discomforts because there's just not as much room there. Now, if you did not have a previous cesarean section, there's no reason to expect while you would need a cesarean section, you could have a vaginal delivery and only get a C-section for any other reason that anybody would get a C-section. Now, if you had a tummy tuck and you've also had a C-section, and you're wanting to have a repeat C-section, it can be, there's, first of all, there's no guarantee we can use the same incision as you had for your tummy tuck. Because um, a lot of patients uh, that I had have done the tummy tuck to get rid of that C-section scar. And you're gonna probably end up with a second uh, incision. Uh, so those are all things to consider uh, when getting a tummy tuck. But the one, one thing I've seen a lot is that they just, uh, there's not as much uh, room there anymore because you, you know, you have a tummy tuck, they take out all the excess fatty tissue, they tighten everything down really tight. And then, you know, there's just, there's just not a lot of room. So that's what I've seen the most. Okay. Okay. Thoughts on using period cups or diaphragms to try and increase chance of pregnancy post-sex. I don't, I don't know, if I, I don't know if there's any data that says that that's So there's not any, there's not any data, but I did a video about the menstrual cup. The menstrual cup has been used by like lesbian couples to get, to get pregnant because you, put the sperm sample into the cup, place it into the vaginal vault closer to the cervix. And that, you know, bypasses a couple of the things that you need. Um, we don't really have data that says it increases your chance by this much, but it's not going to hurt. The important thing to know is you don't want to leave it in there forever. You don't leave it in past 12 hours. Ideally you take it out before then, cause it's probably not doing much than before, but you don't want to leave it in there too long. Um, so it's a menstrual cup and there was something else that people use, not the diaphragm, but something else. Like a, like a menstrual disc? The disc, the disc. Yes, they use the disc. And then some couple, and you can use a menstrual cup one of two ways. You put the semen sample into the cup first, then put it into the vagina, or have traditional intercourse. The ejaculate is inside the vaginal vault, and then you put the cup in. So those are the two ways you can use it. Again, it's not going to hurt. Uh, a lot of people have done it, um, but we just don't have the data that says it increases your chance by this much. Um, but, you know, it's not going to hurt. We got a couple more minutes. Let's see. I have been told I have cervical ectropion, 23 weeks. Any precautions I should take? Talk about ectropion. That's a good um, topic. So ectropion is not something that is like, it's not like a disease state of the mm -hmm. cervix. It's not like a, an infection or anything like that. Um, it's simply the canal of the cervix, the kind of, if you imagine the cervix to be like a tube, um, kind of protruding out a little bit. Um, and it happens when you're in a high estrogen state. It happens when you're younger. And typically, um, as you advance in age, it kind of regresses back. So typically, people who are older in age, you don't see ectropiums a lot. Um, now, what I'd like to tell patients kind of like anticipatorily is you might have spotting with intercourse if you have an ectropion. And of course, if anyone's pregnant, they're very, very concerned, and rightfully so, um, anytime that they see bleeding. And so I say, if you have just a little bit of spotting and it's after intercourse, and we know, you know, we know your, where your placenta is, we know that you're not at an increased risk of vaginal bleeding from a pregnancy perspective, mm -hmm. then just mm -hmm. watch it. If it's just a little bit of spotting, obviously if it increases, you'd come in. But I'd like to tell people that ahead of time, whether it's after a pap, you'll have spotting, after intercourse, you'll have spotting, and sometimes just randomly during pregnancy. 
Yeah. So yeah, it's nothing pathologic. It happens. Um, sometimes you'll see it, you'll know about it for the first time that you had spotting and typically after intercourse, you come into the hospital, we put the speculum in and we see it and we can say, oh, you have cervical atropion. That's probably why. Um, and, and, or somebody, sometimes you go in for your first prenatal visit, you go to get the pap smear or whatever they're doing. And then the provider might see it then. Um, so it's not pathologic. It's not going to hurt anything, but you might have, like Dr. Dawood said, you might have some spotting after intercourse and that's just something to uh, consider, but typically over the course of the pregnancy, it kind of goes away over time, um, but everybody's a little bit different. Um, so it's just something important to know. Okay. That's the last question. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. I hope Thank to so do something again me. with you soon. Yes. Yeah. Go follow her. Follow Dr. Dawood. I will put her handle in the caption to this video. Um, again, great uh, Instagram reels and slideshows that she does. So I highly recommend you go to her account to get some more information. Again, thank, thank you so, so much, much and have a great rest of your week. Thanks, you too. Bye. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Now listen to the next episode where I discuss the maternal mortality crisis with Charles Johnson, founder of 4Kira4Moms.